Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and with me is Darian Lockett, who's a professor of New Testament at Biola University. Thank you so much, Darian, for joining. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Great. So we are talking about Darian's uh, most recent book from 2021, Letters for the Church, reading James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st through 3rd John, and Jude as canon. The Catholic epistles often get curt treatment or dismissal. Tucked into a few pages near the back of our Bible, these books are sometimes referred to as the non-Pauline epistles or concluding letters, maybe getting lumped together with Hebrews and Revelation. Yet these letters, Darian argues, are treasures hidden in plain sight, and it's time to give them the attention they deserve. In Letters for the Church, Lockett reveals how the Catholic epistles provide a unique window into early Christian theology and practice. Based on evidence from the early church, he contends that the seven letters of James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st through 3rd John, and Jude were accepted into the canon as a collection and should be read together. Here, Lockett introduces the context and content of the Catholic epistles while emphasizing how all seven letters are connected. Each chapter outlines the author, audience, genre, and one of the epistles traces its flow of thought and explores shared themes with each other Catholic epistle. By introducing the coherent vision of the seven epistles, Letters for the Church helps us rediscover the theological riches of these important letters. Well, this was a a fantastic book, Darian. Thank you so much. And before we enter into the content, I want to first get to know your educational and academic background and how that background led to the writing of this book. Yeah, thanks for that question. I started my uh, academic training at uh, Baylor University, and um, this is a part of the story that it, students like to hear, but it's a little hard for me to tell. I actually promptly failed out of my first semester at Baylor University. I didn't uh, do very well academically, and that was uh, discouraging and frustrating, difficult, especially for my parents. Uh, but I but I left school for uh, three years and ended up doing um, some Christian missionary work in Eastern Europe, uh, especially in Romania. Uh, and that's that's part of the story because while I was there, um, I had opportunities to uh, to um, to be interacting with uh, folks living there, and came came to a moment where I, I was teaching the Bible. I was a young person, about nineteen, teaching the Bible to a group of people uh, who had not known the Bible well, had not grown up around the church, uh, had been uh, very influenced by communism, uh, and I didn't have much to say. I didn't really know. Uh, what to do in that moment. And, and that really lit a fire, as it were, in, inside me to, to learn uh, more about the history of Scripture, about the content of, of Christian Scripture. Um, and so this, this became a real motivating factor. So I ended up going back to the University of Kansas. That's, I, I grew up in the Kansas City area, so that was going home. Uh, did an undergraduate degree in medieval uh, history, which was really for me, um, I really enjoyed history and enjoyed the church. And so this was a, a good combination for me. I then went to a small uh, seminary in Kansas City called Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's actually much larger now, but when I was there, uh, it was a smaller seminary. Uh, and while I was there, 
a couple of my New Testament professors there introduced me to the work of Richard Bauckham. And uh, uh, that, for anybody who's read Richard Bauckham, you know what I'm about to say. Uh, that was a delight uh, because here is somebody who is incredibly thorough, a, a historian's historian, but a, just an amazing and excellent reader of text uh, and an exegete uh, who is very skilled. And so what I really enjoyed is his perceptive insights into the text, but then his ability to put things together. Um, every time I read something that Richard Bauckham writes, I think to myself, that's so clear. That's so obviously right. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I was very excited then to uh, apply to the University of St. Andrews uh, in Scotland and uh, went there uh, first for an MLIT, so I did a master's degree and then a, a PhD in New Testament there. And really, I, I just want to say my experience at St. Andrews was uh, was uh, very, very shaping, um, both intellectually and socially, um, and I would even say spiritually. It was it was a really, really important time in life. And uh, look back on those years fondly and excited uh, in the fall, this coming fall, I'll be on sabbatical and I'll be back in St. Andrews doing some research there. So I'm really excited about that. So that's some of the educational background I've experienced. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, did Bauckham influence your writing and research on the Catholic epistles? Because I think his commentary on second Peter and Jude to be the part, you know, the pinnacle of commentaries in those two books. Yeah, you're right. It, yeah. His, his two Peter Jude commentary, uh, there's a reason why it still sells so well after 30 plus years. It, it's just so well written, well researched. Yes, of course, uh, Richard's ideas about James has influenced me quite a bit. And uh, you'll see uh, f- for those who have eyes and ears to you know see and hear, uh, they'll see that in this book, Letters for the Church, um, especially the idea of the kind of wisdom motif, the two ways, uh, some of the structure of James that I follow namely chapter one being something of an introduction to the themes that then are unpacked later in the letter of James, very influenced by, uh, by Richard's work there. And then as I read uh, Jude and second Peter, yeah, very influenced by uh, Richard as well, especially seeing in second Peter, this kind of uh, response to heretical teaching uh, and, and really kind of step by step, you can walk through second Peter seeing, seeing the author engaging this false teaching. Uh, and then some of Bauckham's insights about Jude uh, having a midrash uh, there between chapter or verses 5 through 19 and uh, being influenced by, you know, Qumran and a Pesher midrash there. Uh, some of his insights uh, uh, yeah, really influenced me too. Now, We'll probably talk about this, but uh, Richard's ideas about the authorship of Two Peter uh, really important um, and uh, yeah sticky as we get into the de- the details. So you might not ask me that, but if you do, yeah, there's there's something to talk about there. So that's maybe that's the one place where I am just hesitant uh, about about uh, Richard's arguments, but but even it. Uh, is is an excellent argument that you have to think about and take account of. Great. That's fantastic. So as we enter into the content of the Catholic epistles, as they're historically and traditionally known, my first question is not about what's in them, but what's out of them. When I uh, speak about Catholic epistles, there's frequently the inclusion of Hebrews, 
Uh, sometimes 1st through 3rd John are not included in the Catholic epistles. They're put in their own kind of Johannine collection. So why these seven and not uh, a different formulation? Yeah, that's a good question because we can see um, you know, books published on the end of the New Testament, uh, you know, containing Hebrews through Revelation, um, or we can, you know, there, there are courses that are called general letters, um, and, and, and using that nomenclature, general letter, uh, usually what we're describing there uh, in the scholarship is a kind of letter, a particular genre of letter, namely a letter that is written to a wide or undefined audience, a general audience. So uh, as opposed to Paul writing to the Corinthian church or writing to Timothy, James is written to the 12 tribes in the diaspora. Um, or First Peter uh, is written to the elect exiles in you know, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, so on and so forth. So when we think of these letters as general letters, one would be hard pressed to keep Hebrews out of this collection, right? Because Hebrews uh, has a very broad audience. If we can uh, identify the audience uh, with any great clarity, I think the title of Hebrews is a hint to its audience. And so therefore there's a general audience. Maybe the book of Revelation has a general audience because we've got seven letters that, that address seven churches. So that's also seen as general. Um, and like you just said, the first through third John often is studied alongside of the gospel of John and Revelation because of historical authorship. Now, you know, they would, people would debate whether the author of Revelation is the same as the author of the Gospels and the letters. But the point is, is there's a kind of coherence to an uh, authorship there. Um, but, but when we look at the uh, early church and we look at early manuscripts, this title, and here's where I'm going to argue that Catholic epistle is actually a specific title that's naming a group of seven letters uh, at the end of the New Testament. And we see in canon lists in the early church, um, we see in Eusebius, who's an early church historian writing around 300 to 325, uh, mentioning uh, this title. And, and so there's debate, when does this this phrase, Catholic epistle, really Catholic epistle just also means general letter. Those are really interchangeable in one way. But in the early Christian literature and canon lists, uh, Catholic epistle becomes something like a technical uh, label uh, for these seven letters. So what I'm doing is I'm pretty interested in maybe recovering the early church's nomenclature here and the early church's designation of these seven letters. Um, there is more to say here, but Hebrews usually is collected along with the Pauline letters. And, and there's lots of things to discuss here, but the early church wasn't necessarily making a comment that Paul wrote Hebrews, but in the manuscript remains that we have in many of the early canon lists, Hebrews is um, almost always listed with Paul's letters. And Revelation is has its own kind of history as it comes into the New Testament, but it's not ever collected with the Catholic epistles. So these seven letters, James through Jude, um, in the early church were received, and that, that's part of an argument I'd like to make, they're received by the early church as a collection, and therefore writing this book, I wanted to maybe introduce to a newer or you know contemporary audience uh, that, that this is how the church read them, and maybe we 
should read them this way. We might find some particular themes and connections between these letters that the first readers and receivers of uh, these texts saw in them. So a little bit of a long-winded answer there, but hopefully that gives some clarity of why these seven and not Hebrews, not Revelation, and why John's letter should be a part of uh, of these texts. No, that is is clear. Thank you. My When I hear the term Catholic or Catholicity or even Catholicism in regards to New Testament scholarship, you hear this term especially used by 20th century German scholars, early Catholicism uh, or primitive Catholicism. Are, are the Catholic epistles in any way related to this notion that are they speaking to a more structured church, a more broader church? You, you mentioned the term general, or, or is that a scholarly uh, problem? Well, so that's that's a good question too, perceptive one, because in we were talking about Bauckham's commentary on two Peter Jude, and he deals with some of this because um, some uh, scholarly uh, engagement with these letters are going to argue that they were written later, uh, m- much later than the dates of the authors that are being perhaps claimed in the text themselves, and that's where this Catholicism, this early. Uh, kind of coming together of a of a structure of the church, the offices of the early church, and even the theology of the early church. Um, and I, I'm not headed in that direction particularly. I, I have uh, at least uh, some sensibilities or hunch or uh, would argue that th- these texts are written a little l- uh, earlier in this tradition than later. And therefore, I follow Bauckham's argument that we really shouldn't interpret something like Jude in light of an early Catholicism like that in that scholarly sense. Um, it's, so when I'm using that term, I'm not using it in a you know 19th century German kind of scholarly way, but more in its in its early church uh, kind of use, uh, where I think the term Catholic was at one time. Um, describing how these letters are written to general audiences, but that that adjective becomes a proper noun hmm. uh, over uh, some you know a period of time in its usage, and it begins to function as a proper name for these uh, letters. We see some of this, not to get too deep into the weeds, but we see some of this in that in the Eastern tradition they're called Catholic epistles. There are a couple of traditions in the West, that is the Latin speaking West, that they're called canonical epistles. Uh, and some have argued uh, that Catholic Western um, use of canonical epistle might be a way of describing these letters are just as canonical as Paul's letters. And so there's a, a, a situating these letters alongside other letters in the New Testament as part of a full canon. So that that's the direction I'm headed with the, the language of Catholic epistle. Great. One final question before we get into the specific books is speaking about the why question. Uh, I think everyone knows the rather acerbic quote by Martin Luther that James is an epistle of straw. Uh, These books are, as said in the back, tucked away in the corner. Uh, First, second, uh, second and third John and Jude are the shortest letters in the New Testament. So what value do these letters have in comparison to the magnificent magisterial theology of Paul <laughs> or Revelation? 
<laughs> or or the amazing story of Jesus in the Gospels. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, These are his brothers, question. though. <laughs> That's right. So we have a connection there, and and y- yeah, you you anticipate something. I'd love to say that. Yeah. Well, hey, we've got Paul, and he's great to hear. But we've got two brothers of Jesus. Shouldn't we listen to their testimony? But uh, to that point, in a lot of the scholarship on uh, these letters, I uh, read phrases like. Uh, James is the Melchizedek of the New Testament, or these letters are Second Temple junk mail, um, or uh, you know First Peter is like a stepchild. Uh, th- those are all things in print uh, about these letters. And every time I read something like that, um, I just want to stick up for these letters. They are wonderful texts that actually speak to very timely issues like suffering. Um, and how to respond to trials, uh, and what happens when uh, we're confronted by false teaching, or people who are saying they believe one thing, but living in a different way that's very immoral. How, how do we engage that? You know, can those who have been condemned, can, can they actually receive, uh, you know, forgiveness for, for what they've done in the past that's condemning, right? So can even false teachers experience renewal or something like that. So these texts bring up a lot of really pertinent issues. Um, And I, I want to hear not the Catholic epistles instead of Paul or instead of the, uh, the gospels. Uh, uh, My conviction about the new Testament is that uh, kind of like a choir, uh, they're all, they're all singing together. Now the, I used to sing in choir in high school and the basses and the tenors and the altos and the sopranos didn't all sing the same note. Uh, that's what makes harmony really pleasing and interesting and even dissonance. Uh, but we're singing together. And, and so it seems to me, um, Paul gets to sing a pretty dominant, uh, you know, melody with all of his letters together. And, just Jude uh, singing next to Paul is going to be dwarfed by the, the the great melody coming from Paul. But if we hear all seven Catholic epistles singing alongside Paul, maybe that's a little a little more balance. Um, and it, and it strikes me that that's a helpful thing. I I really much enjoy New Testament theology and even biblical theology, and I think uh, important for New Testament theology is to hear the particular voices of these seven letters, but to hear them as singing in harmony together and then singing next to Paul, again, not the same note. We really need to see that, you know, James 2.24 and, you know, Galatians and Romans are are saying, uh, uh, using different words to describe faith and, uh, and justification, but they need not be seen in just utter, uh, you know, um, uh, utter contradiction to each other. So that that's kind of the vision I have here. And then to help us to re-engage with these letters that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that most people who read the New Testament, they're going to be really uh, uh, familiar with Gospels and Paul and less familiar uh, with these texts. No, I, th- I completely agree. Hearing them in, in conjunction is so important. So you brought up James, and I think this is a good transition point. It's the first <clears throat> letter in this canon, in this subcanon, who is James? Who's his audience? And what's he speaking about? Yeah, James, uh, there are several people in the New Testament with this name. Uh, interesting little uh, tidbit here. Uh, in English, his name is translated James, uh, but in but in Greek, his name is Jacobus, uh, which, which of course comes from the Hebrew Yaakov. It's Jacob. Uh, and so there's 
there's an, an initial very interesting observation to make that this is a letter written by uh, Yaakov to the 12 tribes. And anybody who's reading the Old Testament knows the story of Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, who has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So really, really striking connections already made in the first verse of James. Now, in terms of who this historical person is, it, very little doubt there, there's there's one well-known James who could speak with this kind of authority as a teacher, as a wisdom teacher in the early church, and that's the brother of Jesus. Now, there is a famous James, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two disciples of Jesus. Uh, but James, the disciple of Jesus, son of Zebedee, is martyred in Acts chapter 12. That's that's actually very early in the early Christian movement. Uh, in my opinion, too early for him to have been the author of this text. So this is James, the brother of Jesus, the one that we hear about in Acts 15, who is an early leader in the Christian movement, especially in Jerusalem. Um, traditions of him... Um, uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus to the Jews and ends up losing his life in that in that pursuit. So that's the James who's writing. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the diaspora. So lots of discussion. Who is this audience and where are they? Um, I think James is writing to a group of uh, uh, Jesus followers who have Jewish tradition. They are, they're Jewish. They're coming from uh, a Jewish context and uh, they have begun following Jesus. And these are, you know, words of wisdom for them as they are learning to follow Jesus uh, with their Jewish heritage. And the idea of being in the diaspora, so lots of discussion on this, but I think James is probably writing from Jerusalem to dispersed Jewish Christian communities outside Haaretz, right? Outside the, the land. Um, uh, and Bauckham, I'm very influenced by his arguments here, that, that this letter could be going both east and west. So we could think about uh, Jewish uh, communities in Babylon, in modern day Iraq. Uh, so letter going east uh, or west, you know, communities in Antioch or uh, Alexandria, uh, something like that. That's fantastic. Uh, the main contention or controversy of James is this notion of works and how important works is to one's, in a sense, salvation. And so frequently this is contrasted with the many statements of Paul and the Pauline tra tradition. What is James saying about works and how does this differ or, or how is it similar to what Paul and the rest of the Catholic epistles are saying about salvation. Yeah. Uh, the first, what is our way into this, right? Often we um, come to James knowing a lot about Paul, uh, and we read James with great interest only when we get to chapter two, when we hear things that sound like Paul. Um, I hope that's not too sharp and critical. Uh, but what I, would, uh, what I would hope is that we would start to read James on his own, and begin reading James in chapter one, uh, and doing that sets up the context to answer this question. James in chapter one is very concerned about uh, followers uh, of Jesus who are experiencing trials, and those trials are developing a kind of enduring faith that leads to 
teleos, uh, which is a really key word for James. And, and I, it's translated perfect or mature. Um, uh, Doug Moo in his commentary and others uh, in scholarship have argued that maybe wholeness is a way of thinking about what James is really concerned about. And teleos is a way that he's communicating that. James is most concerned about the person who is living in wholeness. That helps set the background for figuring out what James is talking about in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 14, when he says, What use is it, my brothers and sisters, uh, if one has faith without works? Can that faith save him? Really important to translate either that faith or such faith. The King James famously translates, can faith save him? Uh, Which might lead to a misunderstanding. James means that kind of faith, the kind of faith that doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? So I think it's really important to realize that in chapter two, James is not contrasting faith and works. He's contrasting one kind of faith, faith that is in name only, uh, and then faith that actually is expressed or demonstrated in uh, transformation uh, in one's in one's works. So James isn't pitting faith and works against each other. He's talking about one kind of faith that's really not faith at all, and another kind of faith that is accompanied by a transformed life by works. All of it, and that's the whole person. That the one who has wholeness is the one who is expressing both faith and works. James uses the image in chapter one of someone who is not just a hearer, but a hearer and a doer. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be hearers. We need to be both of those things, or at least James would exhort his audience to be both hearer and doer. So in chapter two, when we come to passages like 224, when James says it, you're not justified by faith alone, but by works, um, James, that has to be put in the context of James's concern for wholeness. So if someone is just saying, you know, yeah, sure, I believe, uh, but there's no change in lifestyle, uh, that's a problem. And so he's, he's highlighting that, uh, that the one who is claiming to have faith uh, without any works, that this is problematic. In fact, he even uses the example in verse 19 that the demons uh, have the right confession. Um, so I, I work at a confessional school, and, and so students that come to my school are ones who uh, come with a Christian faith or a confession. And so this is like my cheeky moment to say, guys, you know, we're basically demons, right? We're, we're, uh, we're, we're confessing some kind of faith. But, but really what James is on about here is that we can really congratulate ourselves about what we say we believe. But if that hasn't led to transformation in life, that is a really cheap, uh, shallow uh, claim. I think Paul says very similar things in Ephesians chapter 2, famously there, right? It's it's not by works, it's by grace that we've been saved uh, through faith. But in chapter 2, verse 10, he said that we are created, or Christians are created uh, in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, so, so I think there is... Um, continuity, a degree of continuity to see between what Paul and James are talking about. Also, I think it helps that when we investigate Paul, he's talking about works of the law. And that phrase for Paul is really important, and Pauline scholars know how how very important that is for Paul. James never uses that phrase. James uses the word aragon, works or deeds, but he never qualifies it as deeds of or works of the law, uh, as, as a phrase that is. And um, I think that's important because when James is talking about works, he points to um, 
works of charity, works of love, uh, works of caring for those who are vulnerable, uh, widows and orphans, uh, or those who are without clothing and food. These, these are the works that actually demonstrate faith. Uh, and maybe the last piece here, and this is, you know, people will disagree on this in scholarship, but uh, how does James and Paul use the word uh, uh, justify um, de um, it, 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 is it um, the typical, uh, maybe more common usage of demonstrate something or someone to be just, or is it the more particular Pauline use, confer or declare um, uh, something as righteous? And, and of course, Protestant theology uh, begins uh, to talk about imputed righteousness. Um, so I, I think James and Paul are using that word uh, in in different ways contextually. And so when James is talking about justified, being justified by works, it is a demonstration of, of one's just status. It's a demonstration. And I think his use of Abraham as an example is bearing this out. James alludes to both Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Now, he, he alludes to Genesis 22 first. Abraham is justified by uh, this act of uh, uh, being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, famously in Genesis 22. Um, but James goes on to quote uh, Genesis 15, where it's by faith that Abraham was reckoned righteous. Uh, and of course, that chronologically came before. So I don't want to mute James's voice. He's really pushing the idea that justification and our transformation, we would call that sanctification, those things are really close to each other. They're like two sides of one coin. And the Protestant Reformation wants to pull them apart and look at them in very carefully. And being a Protestant, I understand why, and that's important. Um, but, but, but James is really pushing those together, that they really are hardwired to each other. And I think that's right. Uh, my, my location here is in the United States. And in the United States, Protestantism, especially evangelicalism in the United States, needs to hear this this message uh, that it's not enough to say we believe something it it, it must be worked out in life um, or the confession of belief is 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 less believable so I, th- I think James is really really timely I completely agree and to speak also of timeliness you mentioned earlier that James is a wisdom teacher. Uh, and you mention all the examples he uses, both in your answer and in your book. How is James uh, representing wisdom or Jewish wisdom? Yeah, good question, too. I think uh, quickly, I would say in the two ways motif. So you can look at uh, some of the covenantal language of Deuteronomy and see blessings and curses. Uh, This is a two way kind of idea in some of the covenant literature of the Old Testament, but especially in the wisdom literature. So Psalm 1 uh, throughout Proverbs, uh, you have this idea of the typical Jewish wisdom motif of two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. And at the end of the way of righteousness is is reward or God's blessing. Uh, at the end of the way of unrighteousness is, is judgment or punishment, uh, death in particular. And James seems to be very influenced by this way of teaching. He uses kind of polar contrasts, wholeness versus double-mindedness. 
um, the one who hears and does versus the one who is a mere hearer only. Um, the, the, the one who has faith and works versus the one who just has faith, the one who shows partiality, uh, versus the one who actually shows love, et cetera, et cetera, uh, wisdom from above versus a wisdom from below all through James. And I've done this in some of my work and, uh, uh others, uh, I'm getting this from others as well. Richard Bauckham, a guy named Luke Chung, who was a student of Richard Bauckham has argued this as well. Uh, but I think that's how the wisdom literature of the old Testament is showing up in James. Um, now, now Richard has done a lot of writing in this area, and I'm just going to say, go read Richard Bauckham uh, to hear more about that wisdom tradition showing up in James. But, but that's like the, um, a helpful, quick way of thinking about how that wisdom motif shows up in James and then how it functions as a teaching tool. It's basically confronting the reader that, Hey, you've got two ways to go. Which way are you going to go? So that ends up being a, uh, I don't want to say confrontational, but a challenging way to hear James's teaching. Um, uh, and so the two ways motif, I think, yeah, shows up all the way through the letter. And I think we'll move the way on to first Peter who wrote first Peter and who first Peter, who's his audience and what are the main themes and content of this, of this letter? Yeah. First Peter, uh, the uh, attribution of the text itself is one who is um, is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there's really only one Peter who we could be thinking about here. This is Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Of course, Peter is the nickname of this person. It's Simeon, uh, you know, in Aramaic, Simon in, in Greek. Uh, but his but he's gone by this nickname that Jesus has given him, Peter. So there's no doubt who the text is pointing to. There's scholarly doubt whether or not that historical person uh, is the actual author of the text. Uh, but no, no doubt this letter is being purported to have been written by the disciple of Jesus. Uh, we know from the end of the letter that he had help in writing. Uh, there's, again, some scholarly debate here. It says, through Silvanus, I've written to you. That's Silas. That's another early, very interesting that here, the Pauline mission uh, and the, the Jewish mission, as it were, are kind of connecting. Here's Peter, uh, but talking about Silas, one of Paul's missionary associates that we know from Acts 16. Um, does that phrase at the end of First Peter mean that Silas wrote this letter uh, for Peter, like he's a, he's a scribe, he's a secretary, or does that mean that Silas only delivered the letter so there's scholarly debate over those two views. Um, I, I think either way, Peter had help writing this letter. We have indication in the New Testament from the beginning of Acts that Peter and John were uneducated. They, um, their Jewish officials were very surprised to hear the kind of powerful preaching and learning that they were communicating in Acts. So, uh, And of course, we have these traditions that Peter's testimony stands behind the Gospel of Mark. John Mark had to help him right there. Um, so it, it stands to reason for me that this, this letter is originating from Peter, but he's had help in actually composing the letter. So he has a secretary. He's got somebody helping him, whether that's Silas or not. Um, I kind of lean toward the direction that was probably Silas uh, serving as a secretary. Uh, so I, I so so I think that Peter does stand behind uh, this letter historically. And who is he writing to? He's he he uses this really interesting phrase, uh, "elect exiles," to the elect exiles in the dispersion. Uh, same word that 
uh, James used, diaspora. Elect exiles, that always makes me stumble because it's an oxymoron. How can you be both eg- uh, elect and exile? But, but that actually tells us a lot about this letter. He's writing to a group of people who are chosen by God, right? So notice that Old Testament motif of God's election of his people. But the election of God has resulted in a status of being exile or a stranger. And so uh, Peter is writing, I think, to Gentiles. Again, there's debate there. Are these Jews or Gentiles? I think the phrases like, um, uh, you've been rescued from your futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. Some of those kind of phrases make me think this is a group of uh, Gentiles. Um, and, And Peter is encouraging them to live out their new faith in Christ. Uh, even though this means they are at odds with their surrounding culture. Again, what a timely letter, in in my opinion, uh, because there are dangers that when you face persecution or face uh, adversity uh, for a newfound faith, you might be tempted to soften the message or soften uh, the faith or the ideas of the faith so that you don't have so much conflict with the your surrounding culture, but Peter is not, uh, you know, uh, arguing for that. He's actually saying there, there's something very unique when a, a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus experiences this kind of pushback, you're actually experiencing what Jesus experienced. And this is appropriate. So, so Peter's really addressing suffering, the idea of suffering. And, and he says things like suffering should be expected. Anybody who follows Jesus, should uh, expect to suffer, uh, but suffer for doing what's good, not what's bad. Um, so it's innocent suffering that could be a morally problem- problematic, uh, but but suffer for doing what is good. And why? Uh, for three, because suffering leads to a witness. In fact, it might be the most powerful, uh, most uh, productive witness to uh, a non-believing but watching world when they see followers of Jesus suffer uh, but suffer well, suffer with great grace and humility. Why? Because they're they're following the image of Jesus. And so I'm thinking of First Peter chapter two, where he talks about Jesus being an example. His suffering is an example that you should follow in his steps. Chapter two, verse twenty one. So uh, I I warn my students when we talk about First Peter, uh, this is a gut check moment. Uh, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, this is not a life of ease and. Uh, plenty. It's it's actually uh, a life that might be quite difficult, but in that difficulty is great sweetness, is is great uh, grace. Because again, Peter is saying, hey, the Old Testament prophets prophesied of Jesus's suffering and of the glories that come. And then Peter is saying, well, we then participate in the suffering and the glory to come. So I, I think those are accurate ways of describing kind of the gist of what Peter uh, Peter is getting at, and again, I, I find it uh, yeah, an incredibly encouraging uh, letter, especially at the end, chapter five, when he uh, comes to this concluding uh, exhortation in chapter five or six: "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties really on Him, because He cares for you." Uh, that that's an encouraging thing to say to people who are facing difficulty because of their faith in Christ. 
I'm always reminded of Tertullian's quote, the blood of believers is the seed of the church when reading First Peter because of the power of that witness. One minor thing on First Peter before going to the second is this notion of the descent. First um, Peter 3 and 4 are usually proof texts for saying Jesus descended into, as the Apostles' Creed says, Hades, hell, the underworld. Uh, you don't necessarily take that view. Can you elaborate? Yeah, that's correct. So here I, I, I am influenced by um, some modern scholarly voices here when we begin to interpret chapter 3, starting in verse 18, especially at the end of that verse uh, where uh, Peter says, he was put to death in the flesh, and I think that's clearly a reference to the crucifixion, but made alive uh, by the Spirit— And I understand that to be a clear reference to the resurrection. And then verse 19, in which he also went. So chronologically there, if if we're having a description of the events of Jesus's experience, he has been crucified. And and usually the descent is after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection. But but Peter in chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 18, is saying he's put to death in the flesh. That's crucifixion. He's made alive in the spirit. There's resurrection. And it's in that state in which he also went and made proclamation. So the verb went, translated into English went, uh, peruamai, has no directional indication. That's not went down, went up, went sideways. It's just went. Uh, So there's no indication of a descent there. Uh, If anything, and it went and made proclamation, that word is keruso, not euangelion. So this is not a proclamation of gospel. It's it's an announcement. And so I've been influenced with the interpretation that this is actually Christ's ascension. Um, So this is describing not a descent, but an ascent. And the ascent is through the heavens, uh, where Jesus then finally uh, sits in his heavenly session, and the proclamation to spirits in prison, are not, it's not a proclamation of the gospel to human beings who have died, but it's a proclamation of defeat to the spiritual powers who are in the air uh, as Jesus ascends. And verse 22 seems to give context to that kind of interpretation when it says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. I find that compelling, not just because of the exegesis of the passage, but also how it fits into Peter's exhortation. Christians who are facing suffering, um, you have a Savior who is the victor, Christus Victor. He has triumphed over all powers, all dominions, all authorities, and these Romans who are persecuting you, really what stands behind their persecution is demonic forces, angelic forces who have set themselves against the things of God. Jesus has con- you know, confronted them and defeated them. How much more can you be confident living out this moment of persecution, knowing that the ultimate victory is, is Christ's? That, again, that fits, it seems to fit. Uh, this exhortation that would really encourage the readers. You say chapter four then goes back into this when uh, in verse six, it, re- it describes uh, though judged in the flesh. Uh, uh, no, for this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead. Now notice in my English translation, we've added a word now, 
uh, now dead, that I, I read that as a description of uh, uh, people who are dead now, but when the gospel was preached to them, they were alive. There's a there's another bit of exegesis there in chapter four that again leads me away from uh, the interpretation of the descent. Again, I, I confess the Apostles' Creed. I, I'm just influenced by Calvin there that uh, that uh, that's a uh, that's Christ on the cross experiencing hell, uh, and uh, that's the metaphorical language of the descent. I, I realize that 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 might not be a minority position or a, mi- a majority position on the uh, the confession, but that's how I understand this passage and then uh, what the confession is actually leading us to. Fantastic. Well, speaking of majority and minority positions, we move to Second Peter and <laughs> of controversial letter. Who wrote Second Peter? And specifically, you argue Second Peter is what kind of literature? Yeah. Uh, so the discussion of authorship of Second Peter is, is a long one, and so I'm going to say. Uh, very little here, <laughs> short. Um, it's very controversial. I mean, and, and I can at least set the context to say that the questions of authorship about two, Second Peter, not only modern, these are ancient questions as well. Uh, early uh, church interpreters see the difference in style between First and Second Peter. Uh, uh, many uh, register these questions about authorship of Second Peter, so that's not a new issue, uh, and the differences between First and Second Peter, especially in style and vocabulary, not new uh, as well. So here is th- this is the one area that I uh, uh, I uh, don't agree with what Richard Bauckham has argued. Now, now Richard Bauckham, and I think it's a really important. Um, hypothesis to consider because it does explain a lot. Richard Bauckham argues that Second Peter is a particular kind of genre. So yes, it's a letter, uh, but we know that letters can have kind of multiple genres. It's a, you know, you can slap a, you know, a stamp on just about anything and send it through the mail. So um, Bauckham argues that Second Peter is a uh, an example of testamentary literature and testamentary literature is not something that we're you know, familiar with uh, in the modern era, uh, but in the ancient world, testamentary literature was very popular in the intertestamental time period between old and new Testament. Testamentary literature is a kind of writing uh, that has some specific characteristics. There's kind of a hero of the faith. Um, so you've got the Testament of the 12 patriarchs, the Testament of Moses, so you've got a you know you've got a Jewish uh, central patriarchal kind of figure, and it's uh, it's at the deathbed. Uh, so so this um, the central figure is at the end of life, uh, and very much like the end of Genesis, uh, where where Jacob is speaking to all of his sons on his deathbed, and there's kind of special messages for each one of them. That's that's a part of this literature as well. Uh, this uh, important figure is uh, knows that he's dying and he's communicating kind of this last will and testament, as it were, communicating things that could be prophetic uh, future uh, of, of this son's life or this person's life. The reason Richard thinks that Second Peter fits some of this genre is because in chapter one, uh, uh, verses 12 through 15, uh, Peter says that he 
he knows of his death. In fact, the Lord Jesus has indeed made, you know, this setting aside of my tent clear to me. And it's verse 14. And that sounds like Peter is um, looking at his imminent death. Uh, and at his imminent death, what does he do? He writes this letter. He communicates uh, to his followers. And um, then in chapter two and chapter three, you get this kind of uh, like chapter two, verse one, there were indeed false prophets among the people. Okay, that's in the past Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. There's the prophetic prediction. It's coming in the future. Uh, also, chapter three, Second uh, Peter talks about the future coming of scoffers. So those are all bits and pieces that Bauckham says, hey, this looks like testamentary literature. Uh, it bears some of the characteristics of testamentary literature. Now, why is that important or what? What's the payoff? Well, in testamentary literature, everyone knew the named person who's writing that, Enoch, did not write First Enoch. That, you know, the 12 patriarchs are not the real authors of the Testament of the 12 patriarchs. It's a thinly veiled fiction, uh, and therefore it's not deceptive. It, you know, because all genre is kind of a convention between reader and author where we understand the you know, the, the rules, as it were, of engagement in this genre. So Richard then makes this incredible argument that, of course, Peter did not write Second Peter, and that's really the scholarly uh, census. Uh, and I would call that kind of a skeptical scholarly census. But but Richard then says, yeah, all, all this scholarly consensus then is uh, vindicated. Yeah, Peter didn't write Second Peter. However, Peter is not deceptive then, um, because if Peter didn't write Second Peter, at least from a from a, from a Protestant or a Christian perspective, this means the text is deceptive. And then the problem is how can a deceptive text be a canonical text? How can that be an inspired text that becomes very problematic? Uh, so Richard uh, ha has his cake and eats it too in this really great argument that it's uh, testamentary literature. So Peter didn't write it. However, it's not deceptive. So it's still canonical. It's still trustworthy. So I, str I struggle with this. I mean, it's a brilliant argument. It explains a lot. Um, some of the problems are, uh, if that's originally how Second Peter was read, why did the early church completely forget that? <laughs> uh, there's We have to describe the amnesia then, uh, because this is a newer argument that helps put these pieces together. Whereas it might have worked for the first readers, it certainly didn't work for subsequent readers who had questions about Second Peter. That th that needs to be addressed. That's an issue, I think. Also, some have said, well, you know, maybe Second Peter doesn't look quite as much like testamentary literature as as Richard has argued. Um, I'm I'm more on the fence there. I'm kind of convinced. Boy, it sure does look like testamentary literature seems to function that way, and it seems to be helpful. But this amnesia, this early church amnesia, as I'm calling it, that that's problematic. So, so for the record, at this point in my scholarly life, um, I, I think I'm with Jerome uh, that First and Second Peter both. Uh, are originate from the historical apostle of Jesus, Peter, uh, but both of them are written by separate secretaries or amanuenses, and and therefore they they look quite different. And and the kind of secretarial activity we see happening here is, you know, like when Cicero tells Tiro, "Go write me a letter and uh, send it to whomever you think needs to read it and uh, say what you think needs to be said." <laughs> it, it's it's something like that, you know. Uh, 
whatever secretary is helping Peter, especially for Sega Peter, uh, is probably uh, a co-author uh, is is uh, writing this uh, with a, a dear a, de- a, um, a degree of agency, um, though Peter you know signs off on it. I realize again that's minority in scholarship for sure, but uh, but Jerome had had this perspective, and I think at least for now uh, that's uh, that's where I'm at. The problem here is that there's no new evidence to consider, and so we keep re sifting. Uh, evidence that we've had for uh, several hundred years, um, and so I don't, I don't really see uh, much way forward in in this argument, at least in the short term. I'm sorry that sounds pretty, uh, uh, you know, pessimistic, but um, but this is a hard one, probably the hardest issue of authorship in the whole New Testament. So thanks for asking, and yeah. no more hard questions. <laughs> I, I can't promise you that. Uh, <laughs> Well, we'll go from hard questions to maybe hard epistles. We're transitioning from First and Second Peter to First through Third John, enigmatic, very similar to the Gospel. First John is the middle of this canon. Does that have any significance? Yeah, that's a good question. I have thought quite a bit about why seven. How are the seven connected? Um, I'm less. I'm I'm interested in entertaining that question, though I don't have much to say about it off the cuff. Less important is the dead center of this collection. More important are the connections between the endings and beginnings of of the letters. For me, that shows a degree of interconnection. So there are maybe analogies to be made between the Catholic epistles and the book of the 12 in the old Testament, where they're clearly you've got editorial comments at the end and beginning of texts that bring them together. Um, now I have not in my textual critical analysis seen like uh, smoking gun evidence of editorial activity. But what's interesting is like the early receivers of these texts are seeing connections between the ends and beginnings of, uh, of, of letters. I've always been kind of amazed that second Peter uh, is emphasizing this apostolic correction of false teaching and is emphasizing the idea of false prophecy uh, and First John begins with this eyewitness apostolic testimony uh, that implicitly throughout this letter is fighting against a kind of false teaching about the bodily coming of Jesus. And you get antichrists uh, in 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 First John. I know those might just be thematic kind of connections, but those connections are more telling to me uh, than maybe John being dead center. I've thought a little bit more about why maybe James is first, um, but uh, still kind of working on that. Uh, so that that's uh, those are some questions I continue to work on. But first John uh, through third John, yes, enigmatic, a different kind of writing for sure, uh, but fits here because there's this danger. Uh, toward the church, especially in First John chapter two, where we get these antichrists who have left, and this fracture in the church has made clear that uh, some some doctrinal issues or issues of belief in Jesus are are really important and are, are breaking the church apart. So there's it's in keeping with what Second Peter has been talking about: a denial of the coming of judgment, a denial. Uh, uh, that that the Lord is going to return, Second Peter here, a denial that Christ came in the flesh, um, a kind of you know early uh, 
kind of Gnosticism, or at least a proto-Gnosticism, maybe, or Doceticism, this idea that, uh, 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 you know, denying implicitly that Jesus has come in the flesh. So I, I think First John is, yeah, just a different kind of text. It makes its argument in a different kind of way, but it still mm-hmm. has this kind of false teaching, false living uh, in mind. And I see lots of resonance uh, with James, though saying it different ways, this idea of faith and works, don't love uh, in just word, but in deed as well. Um, don't love the world, this idea of a, of a kind of uh, antithesis between uh, the world and God. Uh, you can't love them both. Uh, that's showing up in 1 John chapter 2. It's showing up in James 4. Uh, again, in very different ways. Uh, those ideas, though, um, are rippling through uh, this text. Uh, John, of course, is the the disciple of Jesus, or at least that's the uh, that's the most likely uh, author here. So, uh, one of Jesus's disciples. Um, and how do these three go together? Maybe I'll say I, I know you're not asking this, but one thing I've always been fascinated with in these three letters is how do Second and Third John fit here? They're so short; they seem to be more like Greco-Roman letters, uh, short and to a particular person or a particular church. In the in the case of Second John, I think that's who the elect lady is as a church. Um, Karen Jobes's idea is very interesting to me that this is a letter packet. Um, and it probably was sent together. And Second John is probably the covering letter. Um, it, it's it's maybe the letter of introduction or the covering letter uh, that then introduces what probably is a sermon. First John, a sermon that was preached in the elder, and I think this is John's uh, church in probably Ephesus, uh, and then sent to the surrounding churches. Uh, with Second John being a covering letter. And uh, the main body, First John, being the sermon, and then Third John uh, is a is a particular letter of recommendation, um, um, where uh, there's controversy or uh, difficulty in the church. Right, some of these antichrists are roaming around, and do we offer them hospitality or not? Well, okay, there are some that you shouldn't offer hospitality to because they're preaching a gospel that's not consistent with the apostolic witness. So don't encourage them. Um, this is not to be mean, uh, but it's to not participate in the propagation of a false gospel, basically. And so Gaius, Gaius needs this letter of recommendation from the elder uh, as he's going out to churches communicating, you know, this concern. Um, and again, that's not going to be convincing to all, but uh, it seems to me that that could explain canonically why these three letters come into the canon. They come into the canon together. Um there's, there's an interesting little tidbit where Irenaeus is quoting uh, from 1 John, but he, he says it's from 1 John, but he's quoting from 1 John and 2 John. Uh, and and that doesn't tell me that Irenaeus doesn't know what he's talking about, but it tells me that 1 and 2 John have always been read very closely together. And here is an example in uh, Irenaeus. Um, so some thoughts about 1 John there. No, thank you. You're obviously developing prophetic skills because I was going to ask about second and third John right right afterwards. So, yes, we have this theme of uh, acknowledging Christ's incarnation against antichrists, false teachers. One last bit about first John before we move on to to Jude is this this phrase it's used all the time in multiple different discourses that God is love. What is what is John mean when he says that God is love? 
Yeah. And he puts that in uh, action or on display. God is love in that he sent his son. Um, God is love in that, you know, his son came to be the atoning sacrifice, the halasmas, uh, twice in first John, he uses that kind of language. So, um, uh, God's love is put on display most spectacularly in the sending of the Son. And so uh, the Trinitarian language in 1 John, uh, I've, I've just written something about the Trinity in the Catholic epistles, and I knew it was there in 1 Peter 1, but looking in 1 John, it was really fun to yeah, to see this Trinitarian language. And of course, it's father and son language all the way through First John and sending of the son. Uh, and then the son's, mm, we would call it his mission, his, uh, you know, his, he's proceeding from the father, but his mission in the world is to be savior, uh, uh, providing this atoning sacrifice. Uh, and he becomes then the savior of the world. So there is where God's love is put on display. That's why it's so important to confess that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, it's because you don't get God's display of love uh, if you don't have a Jesus who has come in the flesh. Uh, so just notice, yeah, the dog, doctrinal kind of concern uh, about the right teaching and the right belief about Jesus. Well, th there's something writing on that, the, the love of God being displayed. And then that's what enables human beings then to love one another. And so interesting in John that the love between us and God is directly connected to our love for others. And so uh, here is a way, like James, we can have faith in works. I can't say I love God without also practically loving my brother and sister. And so those two loves are hardwired to each other. Uh, and I think John is very much making that comment uh, that uh, our love for brothers uh, needs to be the demonstration of our love uh, for God. And that's shown to us clearly in how God has loved us in sending uh, Christ. Well, speaking of love for brothers, we're going to end the Catholic epistles speaking of the, the, the final brother who wrote a letter, Jude. So who is Jude? What is he talking about? <laughs> and then what are some of the... Uh, peculiarities and controversies about what he includes. Yeah, Jude uh, calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, interesting, slave of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. So that's a, a reference to the James that we just talked about in the first of the Catholic epistles. Uh, and we know from the Gospels that there's a Judah, uh, there's a Judah, one of uh, Jesus's brothers. And of course, we're hearing the shortened version of his name here, Jude. Uh, and traditionally, this is one of the brothers of Jesus. Now, we don't know much at all about Jude in terms of his life. And in early Christian representation, when we see saints or, you know, icons, it's usually uh, the disciple of Jesus, Jude, the disciple of Jesus, not Jude, the brother of Jesus, we see depicted. So um, there's there's not much out there, uh, not near as much as, you know, James or Peter or John. Uh, but this is Jude, the brother of Jesus. It's interesting in verse three, we know that he wrote a letter. Well, at least he wanted to write a letter uh, talking about their shared salvation. Uh, but something came up 
uh, and and Jude actually had to change course and write rather a letter to appeal to his audience to contend for the faith. So that's what this letter is about. Again, a, a letter uh, to embattled Christians, uh, maybe not persecution and suffering like First Peter so much, but much more like Second Peter in First John, uh, a, a group of Christians confronted by false. In this case, not teaching, but false living. I think the problem in Jude is a group of people who have weaseled their way into a Christian community, and they're living in a in a certain kind of way that um, misrepresents the truth. And and this is then what what Jude is doing. Now, the the problem here that a lot of people have had with Jude is that from verses five through nineteen, it's very negative. Uh, Jude is basically bringing words of condemnation upon these intruders. Um, uh, Richard Bauckham has convinced me that instead of an angry and response, you know, just uh, a response to this uh, in anger, uh, Jude has actually been very careful with his exegesis, that he's actually interpreting carefully Old Testament and other texts uh, that he then typologically applies to the intruders. Uh, and and uh, again, Bauckham's work is very helpful here to describe this as a kind of midrash, Pesher midrash. It's a Jewish way of interpreting scripture by saying, here's this text that I'm reading. These people in this text correspond to those people who are the intruders. So all the way through this uh, short letter, Jude is doing that. These are those, these people that we think about in terms of the fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the wilderness generation are those intruders. Um, the peculiarities that you just mentioned, uh, the the two most uh, glaring ones are uh, the two instances when Jude refers to non-canonical texts and how he uses them in his arguments. So I just mentioned how Jude refers to these texts. These are those. He uses First Enoch. Um, and also the Assumption of Moses, these two texts that are not canonical texts. Maybe the one that's most uh, well known to us all is in chapter, well, uh, uh, verses 14 and 15 and 16 when he's talking about First Enoch. And this is a direct quotation of First Enoch 1 9. Um, what's very interesting, two things about this quotation from First Enoch, is the text citation that introduces the quotation. He doesn't just say Enoch said or some prophet said. Um, the text of Jude says, and Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying. That's a pretty emphatic textual citation. Um, and, and, and so we're left with, is Jude being ironic here? He actually doesn't think it's uh, inspired, so he's being ironic. Um, I'm not sure how we detect irony and sarcasm in a text, Uh it, it seems that he, that he's communicating that this is a really important text and it's a prophetic text. And notice what he does with it. And in fact, you could dive into this and study it. But uh, it, the quotation from first Enoch in Enoch says, look, God comes with tens, thousands, tens of thousands of his holy ones. Uh, but but Jude has written, look, the Lord comes. And so Jude has basically given a Christological interpretation of first Enoch, which is what Christians do all the time in the New Testament with the Old Testament. Uh, so this problem or this uh, issue is how does Jude think about first Enoch? 
is First Enoch inspired or is it is it prophetic in this way? So we've got early early church going both directions on this. Some early church folks said, let's get rid of Jude because he quotes First Enoch and others who say, hey, uh, maybe First Enoch should be a part of our Christian scriptures. Uh, today, to my knowledge, only the Ethiopian church is one that continues to read First Enoch as, as scripture as a part of the church. Um, so here, I, I think that uh, one of two things is most likely. Jude has either used First Enoch because it is an authority amongst the intruders. So it would be kind of like me using your ammunition against you. It's not because Jude thinks that First Enoch is inspired, but it's uh, a text that his intruders would, would pay attention to. The problem with this is it doesn't seem like Jude is speaking to the intruders throughout this letter. He's speaking to the Christian community that is as being upset by the intruders. So, so that, that view has some problems. Um, another view is, well, you know, if you look at this quotation from First uh, Enoch 1.9, um, Deuteronomy actually, uh, Deuteronomy 33, um, has very similar language. So maybe the real authority is uh, Christian scripture or Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy is actually the authority underneath this quotation. Well, the, the obvious problem with that is, well, why didn't he quote Deuteronomy then? Um Richard Bauckham argues that there is a distinction between scripture uh, or, or canon. Actually, here's the distinction. Uh, he argues that there's a distinction between canon and inspiration, that some texts can be inspired uh, but not included in the canon. Um, now, now, Richard is making a very careful argument based upon what he sees at Qumran and happening in early Judaism, um, but... Uh, I, I think there are some problems there too, uh, at least Christian theological problems when we divide canon and inspiration. Um, so this is this is a hard question, and uh, I've now exhausted all the intelligent things I can say about it, except but that I want to take Jude uh, seriously, that he's introducing this quotation in all seriousness, and he uses it Christologically, and it's effective against the enemies or the intruders that he's arguing against. I don't think that means then that uh, uh, Jude thinks all of First Enoch is inspired, but certainly this passage is one that he sees as inspired because he's included it here. Uh, but those are some ways of thinking about it. S some of those ways would also apply to his uh, use of the assumption of Moses in um, uh, verses 9 and 10, especially 9 in the example of Michael the archangel. That, that one's a little harder because that's a portion of the text that's non-extent. We don't have that portion any longer. And so there's a lot of guesswork about even exactly where uh, that, that story's coming from. And again, I might just point to Richard Bauckham's excellent commentary where he has a, uh, an excursus on this. Um, it's probably some of the best out there. So that's some of Jude. I hope that that wouldn't keep us from reading Jude, though, because his benediction, uh, his final words here, I think, bring the Catholic epistles to a conclusion when he says, Now to him who's able to protect you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and, and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. This summarizes a lot of what the Catholic epistles all have been talking about, a protection from, from stumbling, but then also a kind of wholeness, a kind of purity, a kind of standing before the presence of God without blemish, and this with great joy. Um, 
yeah, Jude has something to contribute uh, here. And I hope that these difficulties wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, make us avoid this really helpful text. No, thank you so much. Um, I apologize for the second hard question, uh, but I think you prepare us to recapitulate really well with the end is speaking about those major themes. So quickly, just what are those core themes throughout the letters? I know uh, Leviticus 19 is something you emphasize that all the letters somewhat share. Yeah. And that issue that they share uh, coming from Leviticus 19.18 is the love of neighbor. Uh, That seems to be something that's running through the texts as well. This antithesis between God and the world, that those are competing allegiances. Now, this isn't a denial of the world or a, a condemnation of creation of what God has made. No, no, far from it. It's more that worldview of the world, the kind of uh, worldview of the world that stands in opposition to God, that those are incompatible allegiances. Uh, those two things don't work with each other. This issue of false teaching also is an issue that weaves its way through several of the Catholic epistles um, and, and, and several other themes uh, to explore. We could see these themes popping up elsewhere in the New Testament as well. So it's not a denial that these uh, themes aren't showing up elsewhere, but more uh, just that these themes seem to be particularly um, holding together, uh, holding together the Catholic epistles. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Your going through the book has been erudite. Uh, and inspiring. Thank you so much. As before we sign off, I just want to ask what future projects regarding the Catholic epistles do you have in store? Yeah, thanks for that. I have a long uh, overdue um, project, uh, and it's interesting that we've been talking about Richard Bauckham's commentary on 2 Peter Jude. So that's in the Word Biblical Commentary series. Um, It's uh, over 30 years old, and I am revising or uh, updating that commentary. So it's still Richard Bauckham's commentary. Uh, my job is to uh, update it uh, because there's 30 plus years of scholarship that's happened. And my job is to not mess it up. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, that's my next project that's been on my desk for quite a while. And uh, it's been a joy to interact with Richard a bit over this project. And I'm hoping uh, to, to bring that to a close. Uh, after that, there's a commentary on James Um uh, in a commentary series that's uh, a little ways into the future. Uh, and there's a, an informal kind of conversation I'm having just now uh, with an editor about um, uh, a book trying to think about issues that run through the Catholic epistles that might help us see, again, connections. So like a chapter on the uh, diaspora. How does this idea particularly connect James and First uh, first Peter, uh, or the issue of memory. It seems like second Peter is, um, thinking about memory, bringing to the memory of the readers, things that they already know, but is this a way of taking apostolic teaching into subsequent generations and almost anticipating the function of Canon? So those are sketches. It's at the very beginning, but I'm kind of excited about, uh, maybe, uh, taking these little, pathways or forays into different areas through the Catholic epistles that might help us see more canonical interconnection. Um, So those are some of the things I'm working on. Glad to get to do them. Well, I look forward to reading those, uh, I assume, fantastic pieces of future scholarship. Thank you so much, Darian, for your time.